Okay, this evening's topic is related to the current conflicts we see happening in the United States and other parts of the world, especially in the United States because of a, a certain radical, rabble-rousing, mobster type of group that purports to help their race and other races. Now, the reason why this topic is so important is that there are so many moral implications related to the Bible that need to be addressed, need to be answered. We need to have a biblical understanding of the controversies that we see happening. That is, why is it that these black groups, especially one black group, is fomenting so much chaos and rebellion in the United States against white people and specifically against policemen? What's happening, what's going on, and how should we look at these events? The reason why we need to address it is our own leaders, our own evangelical leaders, few of them are speaking properly on the subject. And others of them, even within our own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, we have problems. We have certain leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention who are supporting these black, racist, mobster groups especially the group Black Lives Matter. Two names in particular, Albert Moeller, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kentucky. He has supported this group, Black Lives Matter. Another is Russell Moore, the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Both of these men have supported this group. This is, this is something that should not be done. Christians should not be supporting this group or any other group like it. It has nothing to do with reality. It has nothing to do with biblical truth. It has nothing to do with the facts of the matter. In fact, there is much that's going on in the propaganda and the rhetoric of our controversy that needs to be clarified. Much that needs to be clarified. And I plead with you not to listen to the average sources of media. Do not listen to them. They are not reporters. They're not journalists. They are propagandists. They have an agenda to spew whatever they want to spew to influence public opinion in a certain way. That's what they are doing. The vast majority of what people call news is not news. It's propaganda. Now, why do I say this about Black Lives Matters. Let me read to you from their website. Their website about what they themselves believe. They say here about their beliefs under the heading globalism. We see ourselves as a part of the global black family and we are aware of the different ways we are impacted or privileged as black folk who exist in different parts of the world. Black women, black women, and there were three women who founded this group. Three black women who founded this group. They say, we are committed to building a black women affirming space free from sexism, misogyny, and male-centeredness. They want to affirm a black women affirming space free from sexism, misogyny, and male-centeredness. 
Another heading, black villages. Black villages. We are committed to disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended, extended, they say, families and villages that collectively care for one another and especially our, quote-unquote, our children to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Notice the absence of the word father. Loving engagement, next heading. Loving engagement. We are committed to embodying and practicing justice, liberation, and peace in our engagements with one another. They call it loving engagements. Restorative justice. Restorative justice, next heading says. We are committed to collectively, lovingly, and courageously working vigorously for freedom and justice for black people and, by extension, all people. As we forge our path, we intentionally build and nurture a beloved community that is bonded together through a beautiful struggle that is restorative, not depleting. Collective value. Collective value. We are guided by the fact that uh, all black lives, regardless of actual or perceived sexual identity, gender identity, gender expression, economic status, ability, disability, religious beliefs or disbeliefs, immigration status or location. They are guided by the fact that all black lives, regardless of actual or perceived sexual identity, gender identity, gender expression, economic status, ability, disability, religious beliefs or disbeliefs, immigration status or location. Next, empathy, empathy. We are committed to practicing empathy. We engage comrades with the intent to learn about and connect with their contexts. Queer affirming, heading queer affirming. We are committed to fostering a queer affirming network when we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather, the belief that all in the world are heterosexual unless she, he, or they disclose otherwise. Unapologetically black. Unapologetically black. We are unapologetically black in our positioning. In affirming that black lives matter, we need not qualify our position. To love and desire freedom and justice for ourselves is a necessary prerequisite for wanting the same for others. Next, transgender affirming. Transgender affirming. We are committed to embracing and making space for trans brothers and sisters to participate and lead. We are committed to being self-reflexive and doing the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women, who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. Trans antagonistic violence, especially towards black trans women. 
black families, black families. We are committed to making our spaces family friendly and enable parents to fully participate with their children. We are committed to dismantling the patriarchal practice that requires mothers to work quote unquote double shifts that require them to mother in private even as they participate in justice work. I believe they mean that they cannot be mothers and also do this kind of radical agenda at the same time. These are some of their beliefs and principles. This is what they stand for. You may have noticed that some of the terminology that they used was Marxist, coming from the manifesto of the Communist Party. The Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx, published in the 1800s, the mid-1800s. This terminology is coming from them. And it should not be a surprise also because some of their funders, major donors, are Marxist communist people themselves. One major name is George Soros. George Soros, a very wealthy man, he is known. He's well known. All the literature and evidence is there. He's well known for funding these kinds of groups to foment rebellion and chaos in society so that the society moves in the direction of totalitarian rule, authoritarian and totalitarian rule, communist rule. He is behind it. Now, mention is made in this kind of propaganda of American slavery. American slavery. Yes, slavery in America, just as in all parts of the world, and just as in various institutions that are God-ordained, such as government itself, families, parents, marriage, there are, are areas of corruption. There's no doubt about that. And American slavery had that. But it was not the way that it is portrayed. Only a small percentage of Americans own slaves. About 1.4% of Americans own slaves. And some of those were black people themselves. And it was black people, one black tribe, would enslave another black tribe. And then when they wanted money for those black slaves, they would sell them to the white Europeans. So black people enslaving other black people. Just as in the United States and all across the world, there were tribals or indigenous peoples, just like the Native Americans in the United States. One tribe enslaves and mur murders, massacres, another and enslaves them and then sells them, sells them to Europeans and others. This happens. Why is it, if, if it is in that way, historically and factually speaking, that we're only speaking in one direction? black people against white people, as though all white people or most white people are racist by nature and seeking to enslave and massacre and brutalize black people. It's not the case. It's not true. Amen. It has nothing to do with the facts and reality, whether historically or currently. Moreover, slavery is still happening all around the world. Yeah. It's happening in the United States and it's happening in many other countries. India. My native country is one of the most notorious for slavery. It's happening right now. Why is it, if it's happening right now, that Black Lives Matters, supposedly, 
We should rename it Bogus Liberal Marxists or Bogus Liberal Mobs. That's what they really are. They are not truly concerned for black people and they're not truly concerned for slavery because it's happening now. And do they speak against it? Do they do anything against it? It's happening in many nations all across the world, in Asia, in Africa, in North America, in Europe. Slavery exists. Who's preaching against it? They're not. That means they're not really concerned. Speaking of that, the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party, they are the major mouthpiece of all of these lies and deceit, propaganda, all the rhetoric that is happening. They are the major source of it, the major channel, formal channel of it, the Democratic Party. Yes, it was the Democratic Party that supported slavery of black people in the mid-1800s. It was the Democratic Party that started it. The Republican Party under Lincoln opposed it. They opposed it and they've always opposed it. But not the Democratic Party. They supported it. The laws after that, the Jim Crow laws, the Jim Crow laws were supported by Democrats. Supported by Democrats. Segregation. Segregation of society. It was the Democrats that supported it. And it's even now the Democrats that support the isolation of communities. The ghettos that we have of the various kinds of ethnicities and languages that are happening now in the United States, in American cities, is being supported by Democratic-run governors and mayors and officials in our U.S. cities. Most of the U.S. cities are not controlled by conservative people. They're not even controlled by the Republican Party, which has a mixture of some liberals and some conservatives. It's controlled by Democrats. Most of the cities are. And they are the ones who are promoting all of these ghettos and various isolated communities who rise up against one another. They are doing that. Their policies, their rhetoric, they are doing it. And then who? Who was against the civil rights movement? Who was against the civil rights movement but the Democratic Party? The Democratic Party was unwilling. They fought against it. They spoke against it. They were against civil rights. Margaret Sanger, Margaret Sanger, the founder of so-called Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood. Actually, pernicious poison of families and people, and especially black people. She is on the record for saying that the black race needs to be obliterated. And she supported abortion. Euphemistically called, I should say. Abortion is more of a, a technical, medical kind of term. We should actually call it the butchering of babies. Something of that sort. The murder of innocent babies. She supported it. She was a white woman supported by the Democratic Party who founded Planned Parenthood. And where does Planned Parenthood mainly have their so-called clinics, which we should call butcheries? Where are they located? Primarily in cities, primarily in black and now Spanish or Hispanic neighborhoods. Primarily, that's where they are. Yes, they do butcher white babies and brown babies, such as you know, Indians and others. They do that too. But primarily, they are butchering 
black babies. Still, with the support of the Democratic Party. And what about the KKK, Ku Klux Klan? Who historically has supported the Klan? It has been the Democratic Party. And they still do. The Democratic Party, KKK. In fact, one senator named Robert Byrd, he was in the Senate as a Democrat from the late 50s to uh, the 2000s. He was in the Senate and he was a member of the KKK, a prominent member of the KKK, Robert C. Byrd. Who spoke against him? Who called for his resignation? Who insisted that he discontinue his membership and stop being the leader of his local clan group? He did all that and without opposition from the Democratic Party, from black people and so-called so people such as Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton and others who pretend to support and help black people. They didn't speak against him. They didn't insist. They didn't insist that he resign. And also now, Barack Hussein Obama. Barack Hussein Obama. Eight years ago, before he was president, we didn't have all of this cultural turmoil. What has he done? He has, by his own rhetoric, caused this. The, the main responsibility belongs into the hands of Mr. Obama, Barack Hussein Obama. His rhetoric, his policies, his deals, his closed-door meetings, he is the one doing this. And he loves to talk about rights for the blacks. Rights for the blacks. But why doesn't he ever say he's half black? His mother was white. His father was black. Why does he never say that he's half black? And why do people keep saying he's black, he's black, he's black, when he's only half black? And if he's only half black, why does he never speak up for white people, male or female? He never speaks up for them. He never defends them. He's always attacking them. Hillary Rodham Clinton is another source of poison in our culture. Hillary Rodham Clinton. She claims to speak up for women. She claims to speak up for children. She claims to speak up for minorities. She claims all these kinds of things. But she supports the butchering of babies. She supports so-called Planned Parenthood. She supports government funding, our tax funding of Planned Parenthood. When who's dying? Black babies and even female black babies are dying. And she says she cares? No, she doesn't. She doesn't care at all. She is one who has blood on her hands. Speaking of that, Hillary Rodham Clinton and Joseph Biden, the vice president, they have spoken racial slurs against Indians from India, East Indians, my native place. They have done so in the past. When they did so, did anyone insist that they resign from their government posts? Did anyone insist that they do that? Why did the Democratic Party that supposedly supports 
all races and equality among the races not speak up and insist that Clinton and Biden be removed from office. They never did so. And you may say, well, what is your political affiliation? My political affiliation happens to be Republican, but I am more concerned about the conservatism, the Christian faith, and the American Constitution than I am the Republican Party. It happens to be the vehicle that I use. And why am I a Republican or conservative Republican? I am that because I believe in the Bible and I believe in the principles of the Constitution. That's why I am. And I would never be a Democrat because the Democrats hate races. They hate other races. They hate black, brown, and all kinds of other races, even white and Jewish. They hate them all. I can never affiliate myself with that party. Now, returning to the terminology, the terminology of BLM, justice, race, so forth, when they use this terminology, they are using the terminology of rebels, fomenters, uh, mobsters who are Marxists. You could say they're the same thing. If anyone reads the Communist Manifesto and documents that have been formed since then that are along the same lines, they use this kind of terminology. They use the terminology in order to put a nice sounding word out there that no one can refuse. Who can refuse the term social justice? Who can refuse using that word? Who can refuse using such words? Unless you know what they mean by it, you would not want to oppose it. But the average person doesn't know what they mean by it. What do they mean? By social justice, they mean Marxist view of destruction of society and then reorganization according to the mind of Karl Marx. That's what they mean by social justice. They don't mean that they really care for the poor. They don't mean they really care for equality in society. They don't really care for children. In fact, their first victims are the children. To separate the children from their parents, especially their fathers. That's their first goal, is to seize our innocent little children. Do not believe the rhetoric. Do not believe their terminology. It has no basis in reality. They are full of lies and deceit. That's all it is. You listen long enough, you watch their behavior long enough, you understand where they're coming from, what their goals are, what evidence they have for the things they say, they cannot be trusted. Do not trust them. They're full of lies and deceit. Now this word, racial reconciliation, what's the definition of a race, may I ask? And who's going to define what a race is? What's the definition of a race and who's going to define what it is? You can have numerous explanations as to what a race is. Why do we have to say white and black? Why do we have to say yellow or brown or red? Why do we have to say anything about race like that? Why do we have to speak in these categories? Who started this and why do we need to speak like this? For example, this conundrum about what a race is, is evident in my own family. My own family. 
people think that the people of India are monolithic and they speak one language, they have one mindset, and they have one religion, there's one race, they think. That's not the case whatsoever. It is very different. It would be like Africa or Europe as one nation. That's the way India would be. It is like Africa or Europe as one nation. There are some similarities among the South Asian, the Indians. There are some similarities, but many, many differences. Just like Africans have some similarities that make them distinct from Europeans. But even the Europeans, they have some similarities that make them distinct from Africans, yet they have some things that are common. That's the same with India. In my father's case, he came from the state of Tamil Nadu. His native language was Tamil. Tamilians don't often freely marry and inter, uh, integrate with all the other groups within India, the other languages of India. Some do, but many of them, the vast majority of them, do not. They consider themselves their, their own culture, and even within their culture, they have other cultures. They consider them, themselves very different from others. Well, he married my mother from the state of Gujarat, on the western side of India, north of the city Mumbai. He married her. They speak the language Gujarati. Their culture is very different. Their religion is different. It's within Hinduism, but they have different gods. They have different ways of worshiping their gods, so on and so forth. They eat food differently. They talk differently. They dress differently, so on. They're very different. So what race am I? What are you going to call me? And then my wife. Her father was, had two uh, parents from two regions. One. Nepali, Nepali mother, and the father, uh, uh, her grandfather was from Punjab. Her father's father from Punjab, and her um, father's mother from Nepal. They speak different languages, and even today they are parts of different nations. How can we group them together and say they're the same? They're not the same. They don't consider themselves the same. So then what would we call my wife? What would her... Oh, uh, oh, then her mother. On her mother's side, her mother is from the state of Bengal. Bengali is her language. From the eastern part of what used to be called Calcutta, now Kolkata. In that part, that, from that region is where her mother's from. So what will we call my wife? Of what race is she? How are we going to define that? And then to complicate the matters, we have three sons born in the United States. Natural born American citizens. Now they have, in terms of five languages and cultures distinct that were many times in history their own nations with their own governments. They have all five kinds of ethnicities and languages or races in them. What are we going to call our three sons? Would it be fair to call them Indian? No. Would it be fair to call them American? No if we're talking eth ethnically speaking. What are we going to call them? So the, my point is, what does racial mean? Next, what does reconciliation mean? Why do we have to assume that a person in one race or the majority of people in one race are at odds with the people of another race? Why are we assuming that people hate each other? When usually it's few people, few who are white, 
hate blacks, and, and few who are black hate whites. And you, you can mix it up. There would be the same with the people of India and what they think of people of, of other nations. A few Indians are racist towards each other, and a few of them are racist towards people of other countries. But not the vast majority of people who live in India. They're not like that. Just like the vast majority of people in the United States are not like that. So why are we assuming there's animosity, there's strife, and that we need to be reconciled? Why are we assuming that in terms of the vast majority of people? It's not the case at all. So why use this phrase, racial reconciliation? It makes no sense because it does not portray reality as it truly is. Now, one more point is if we're going to defend a certain race that is the target of death and persecution, generally speaking, it would be the Jews. Even now, and even in the United States, not black people, but Jews are the target for the majority of the time. Even the FBI reports that fact. The Jews are the target. Why is nobody speaking up for them? Why is nobody defending them? Why is that not happening? And even right now in the nation of Israel, they are the main target of animosity worldwide. The United Nations primarily hates the nation Israel. Why? And who speaks up for them? Who's defending them? And also in the United States and in Europe, there is this mentality that's anti-white, conservative, Christian, and especially male. It's against white, conservative, Christian males. Yes, also females are targets. But you hear this rhetoric. Why is that justifiable? Why is that justifiable? I thought we're for equality. If we're for equality, then quit speaking this rhetoric that's not based in reality against white, conservative, Christian males. It's unjust. It's unfounded. Now, that was my introduction. That was my introduction to the issues. I would like to now ha have us dig into the Bible to see what the Bible has to say. What does the Bible have to say? Because as Christians, the Bible is our, life, uh, is our guide for life and godliness. The first point from the Bible that I would like to make is that a lot of people have a deficient understanding of mankind. A deficient understanding of mankind. The origin of man and the source of man where all of us come from. In the Bible, from Genesis 2, verse 7, and Genesis 2, 18 to 25, it explains that the first man was made of dust from the ground. Dust of the earth. He was made from the ground. Adam, the first man, was made from the ground. About 4,000 B.C. And from him, according to Genesis chapter 2, the woman was made from the man. The woman was not made from another part of the ground or from an animal or from a plant or from a rock or any other source. She was not just instantly made either without 
the agency of the man. She was made from the man. God took a rib from the man and created the woman. By that action, God is showing the solidarity of the male and the female. We're coming from one source, from God himself. It's there on purpose. God created us that way purposely. That's the, the first point. Not only that, but regarding our similar origin or the same origin, we also have a same, the same destiny, the same physical destiny. We came from dust and we will return to dust. Psalm 90 verse 3 and Ecclesiastes 12 verse 7 both declare that we are going to return to dust. And the dust will return to the ground from which it came, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Ecclesiastes 12.7 We come from this origin. We all come. Secondly, male and female, all from Adam and Eve, we possess the image of God. Genesis 1, 26-27 first asserts this truth. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. There we have God creating male and female, whom he calls man, collectively, man, and he makes him in the image of God. Not only the male and not only the female. Therefore, there is no room for the feminist view that females are superior to men. And there's no view for a misogynist view that males are superior to females. There's no room for either of those. The Bible says we are both created in the image of God. And it's not only the original creation. Genesis 5 speaks of the son of Adam and Eve. Genesis 5, verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. The image that was in Adam was transferred to Seth. Genesis 9, verse 6, after the flood, when Noah and his family exited the ark, God says in Genesis 9, verse 6, Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. This is the, the law for execution of a murderer. The murderer should have his own blood shed when he murders and murder in the Bible is the taking of innocent human life apart from warfare and apart from the government executing a criminal who deserves to be put to death. When that happens, it's murder, and the murderer should be put to death. Why? Because the victim possesses the image of God. And here he's assuming that Noah's descendants have the image of God. This image is retained. And also James 3.9 speaks of us possessing the image of God. He, there he uses the phrase, we were created in the likeness of God. Point two, therefore, is we all have the image of God. Point number three, all humans are de descendants of Adam and Eve, and then 
Noah and his three sons. We've already seen that we come from Adam and Eve, but then we further know from the Bible that we all, all peoples, all nations, all tribes, come from Noah and his three sons. Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. Genesis 9, 18. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. From these, these three sons, the whole earth was populated. Chapter 10, Genesis 10, verse 32. 10:32. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Genesis 10, 1 to 11, 9 explains the fact that Noah's sons were in separate nations and tribes and regions of the world, and they were scattered because of their disobedience. And here, the scripture is saying that these nations all came, all these nations came from Noah and his sons. Next point. The next point is the Bible supports intermarriage between different nations or different ethnicities. The Bible supports intermarriage so long as the two marrying parties have the same faith, that is, are believers. If a person is a believer, then he should marry another believer, a true believer in Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible supports this kind of intermarriage among different races. Examples we have are Joseph. Joseph in Genesis 41, who was the second ruler of Egypt. Joseph married an Egyptian. His wife was As Asenath, the, the, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, or the governor of On. Whether he was a religious priest or a, a governmental official, is uncertain, but she was an Egyptian. She was an Egyptian who married Joseph. Moses, in Numbers chapter 12, Numbers 12, Moses is said to have married a Cushite woman. His siblings, Miriam and Aaron, opposed him, and God opposed them, because God supported the marriage of Moses to the Cushite woman. Salmon, Salmon, uh, a Hebrew, he married Rahab. Rahab the Canaanitess. Rahab of Joshua 2. She married Salmon, a Hebrew man, according to Matthew 1, verse 5. Boaz. Boaz, from the nation of Israel and from the tribe of Judah, he, a Judahite, married Ruth, a Moabitess, from a different nation, a pagan nation. In these passages, we assume that they not only intermarried, but they were also believers. We assume that because there's nothing in these passages that disdains their marriage. And in fact, in the case of Moses, we have a clear example of God supporting the marriage in opposition to Miriam and Aaron. And in the case of Boaz and Ruth, we also have evidence that Ruth was a true believer. As well, other passages that support this view, Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 6, Ezra 9 to 10, Nehemiah 13, 1 Corinthians 7, 39, 
1 Corinthians 9, 5, and 2 Corinthians 6, 4, 14 to 18, supporting the view that intermarriage is possible as long as the spouse is a believer, is in Christ. Point number five. Point number five. Governments exist to support biblical justice, biblical law, and natural law. Governments exist to support biblical or natural uh, biblical and natural law and justice. Governments exist for that purpose. And this even includes pagan governments, unbelieving governments exist for that purpose to support biblical justice. The way the Bible defines justice, the way the Bible defines the way societies should regulate themselves. The Bible supports the fact that even pagan, unbelieving, polytheistic governments should do whatever is in the Bible. And directly for our topic today, even directly for the benefit of aliens, strangers, people of different languages who are living in one's country. The Bible supports that truth. Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. 23 verse 1. You shall not carry a false rumor. Do not join your hand with the wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow a multitude in doing evil. That reminds us of BLM and other, other groups that purport to be doing right. They're doing wrong. They're doing evil. Don't follow a multitude in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. And you shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. And you shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger, for you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19, verse 15. 19, 15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Verse 33, 1933. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you are aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Notice here, justice and love is to be meted out to the stranger who resides in the land. 
Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 16. 116. Then I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen and judge righteously, between a man and his fellow countrymen, or the alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's, and the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. Chapter 10, Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. 1017. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. Deuteronomy chapter 24, 24, 17. You shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. 27, 19. Deuteronomy 27, 19. Cursed is he who distorts justice due an alien, orphan, and widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. It's very clear that God expects justice to be practiced. Justice for everyone who dwells in the country. Everyone who dwells in the country. Notice also what the Lord says in Romans 13. Romans 13, 1 to 7. We point this out because this is a very, very clear example. The Roman government was a pagan government. They worshipped a Roman pantheon of gods. They were not Christians. And yet here, they are in existence for the purpose of meeting out justice. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Here, in these passages from Deuteronomy and Romans, we see that justice is supposed to be practiced by the governmental authorities. The magistrates, any politician, anyone who has the authority of the government is supposed to practice justice. We know that, we promote that, we believe in that. The justice is for the native and the alien. It's not just justice for the alien, and it's not just justice for the native. It's justice for the native and for the alien. 
So we should have as our assumption that we expect justice from the government and that the government works in our favor in order to promote justice. We should not start as certain racist groups like BLM that the government is not doing this and the vast majority of people are not receiving justice because it's not true. It's not true according to God's thinking and it's not true according to the current facts of our dilemma in the United States. It's not true. Another example or another point to make. Point number six. We've mentioned aliens or foreigners, strangers, people of a different ethnicity or nation. The Bible also acknowledges that not all aliens are legal or righteous. Not all aliens are legal obeying the laws of the land. And they're not all righteous. They don't always do what is the will of God. That means that they practice illegalities, they practice crimes, and they practice wickedness. Some aliens do so. We cannot assume just because they are aliens that everything they do must be legal and must be right and true and beneficial to our society. It's not the case. We have the example in Numbers 25 when the people of Moab and Midian, two foreign nations, Moab and Midian, they incited the people of Israel to worship idols and to practice sexual immorality. The people of Moab and Midian incited the people of Israel to worship idols and to practice immorality. They incited them to do so. They were there. They were in contact with each other. They were in the same area. And they used their influence, they used their proximity in order to entice the people of God. And they did entice them. And it resulted in the death of thousands of people. Isaiah chapter 9 is another example of this. Isaiah chapter 9. We know that the prophet Isaiah primarily has oracles of judgment, especially in some of the first chapters. Here we have one such section. Chapter 9, an oracle or a revelation, a pronouncement of judgment. Isaiah 9, the society has sunk so deep, so low in their sin and depravity, he says this, 9.17, Therefore, the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer. He doesn't even take pity on their orphans and their widows. These are native orphans and widows who are in the passages we read earlier in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. They're all in the same category. Orphans, widows, and aliens. He just happens here to only mention the two of them, but he certainly includes whoever in the land is practicing wickedness, even the vulnerable orphans and widows who usually and typically are cared for, are supposed to be cared for under the law. God's saying here, even they are practicing evil and they deserve to be punished and put to death. The, the logical conclusion would be aliens might do the same, just as they did in Numbers 25. 
And then in the New Testament, we have John chapter 4. We have a, the familiar incident of the Samaritan woman at the well. We should say the fornicating Samaritan woman at the well. When Jesus talked to her and confronted her, remember he said to her, he said, go and call your husband. She said, I don't ha do not have a husband. And he said, I know you do not have a husband. You have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. He confronted her sin. She was a Samaritan. She wasn't of the tribe of Judah. She wasn't from the region of Judea. She was from the region of Samaria, where there was a mixed race. And they did not have the, the proper understanding of the Old Testament. They had some aberrations. And Jesus says to her in that passage, you worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know. For salvation is of the Jews. He told her she's an unbeliever and she's a sinful unbeliever. And what was her race? It was of a different race. Even Jesus acknowledged that one could be an alien, a stranger, somebody from a different race, and be a sinner. Do things that are unrighteous or wicked against the law of God. Just a few examples. And the next point, point number seven. What should our attitude be towards magistrates, governmental officials? What should our attitude be? First Timothy chapter two. First Timothy chapter two, verse one. We should have a prayerful attitude that they might regulate our society with order, and even help the Christian church to do what it's supposed to do, to please God. That's the answer of 1 Timothy 2. First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Who does he mean when he says all men? For kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. How is it possible for us to be involved in a mob to overthrow the police force, to assassinate policemen, to ma murder them for doing nothing wrong. How is it possible for us to be a part of anything like that or any group like that or to endorse a group like that if we're praying like this? If we're supposed to pray like this, we would never behave like that. We would never give money to a group like that. We would never pray for their success. We would never say publicly, I agree with what they do. And there is white racism against black people. And keep on repeating this rhetoric so that that group doesn't stop what it's doing. If we're praying like this, praying that they regulate our society so that there's peace, harmony, we would never join ourselves with a, a racist group. We would never do that. We, in fact, would ask for an orderly society so that the Christian church can preach the gospel and live as God has called us to live in our society.
Next is 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 13.2.13 Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king, as the one in authority, or to governors, as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil." But use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. How would it be possible for any Christian, any professed Christian, to read these words and then say he supports racism, a racist group, whether it's one group against another, or the other against the, the one? We cannot support it in any way any kind of racism, if we are submitting ourselves to every human institution, the king and the governors, the implication, his lower officials who carry out justice on the local level, we cannot do that. They're sent to punish evildoers. What we're supposed to do right. And by doing right, we silence the ignorance of foolish men. We act as free men, and we don't use our freedom as a covering for evil. We cannot use propaganda saying, yes, we live in a free country and I'm going to use it to show my opinion on this issue. And then go and murder a policeman. We can't use our freedom as a covering for evil, but be bond slaves of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the king. That's what we should do. Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Speaking of policemen, we have them mentioned here in the Bible. Acts chapter 16. In this chapter, the Apostle, the Apostle Paul has been preaching in Philippi. This is the incident of the, uh, of the city having a demon-possessed slave girl. The Apostle Paul exercises the demon, removes the demon from her, and her masters are upset. They, they create a mob and get Paul and Silas thrown into jail, unjustly thrown into jail. They're in jail, and then they're praying and singing hymns of praise uh, at midnight. They're singing to God. There's an earthquake. They're released. The jailer thinks that they've escaped, and he says, Paul says no, he's, and he's, he stops killing himself, and then he believes, his household believes, they're baptized. All of this wonderful thing happens. Verse 35, Acts 16, 35. In this chapter, the magistrates did wrong. Now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen, saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now therefore come out and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison and now are they sending us away secretly? No indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. What does he want? He wants the magistrates, not the policemen, their spokesmen, to come personally and say, okay, you are released. 38. 
And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came, the magistrates came, and appealed to them, appealed to Paul, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison, found weapons, and murdered the policemen and the magistrates. No, it does not say that. It says they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Do you see Paul the Apostle? He did have in this instance a matter of injustice from the authorities. But what was his procedure? Was it to retaliate by murdering them? By assassinating them? By creating a mob in return for the mob that was created? He didn't do anything like that. He did it. He handled it peacefully. So what should our attitude be towards the magistrates? We should pray for them. We should support them. We should honor them. We know that generally speaking, they are there for our benefit. We know that. They're there for our benefit. Especially the more local we get. The more local we get, we do know that they are here for our benefit. So if we're praying for them like this and concerned for them and honoring them as we should, we would never support any group that promotes violence one against another like this. And in fact, we have the example of the Apostle Paul. He dealt with unjust magistrates. The policemen themselves were not so much to blame, but the magistrates who told them to do whatever. And yet they didn't respond with violence and physical retaliation. They didn't do that at all. So we shouldn't do it. And no Christian involved in the movement or endorsing the movement should support it. Next point, point number eight. Instead of blaming our ancestors, we are responsible for our own sins before God and earthly rulers. Instead of blaming our ancestors, we are responsible for our own sins before God and earthly rulers. We should not blame them. In fact, there's a kind of a, a major contradiction with those who say, we need reparations for slavery. Reparations for slavery. Really? When there were only 1.5% slave owners? We need all of the current citizens or taxpayers to pay money to black people? Really? And what about the black people who own slaves? And what about the tribals who own slaves? And whoever else owns slaves? Are we going to insist that they pay back some money? And how are we going to figure out among the blacks which ancestor of the blacks did have slaves and which ones didn't? It gets into a big complicated mess. In, in the case of Scripture, though, I'm just trying to, to clear the air with all of this propaganda on reparations. What about calling attention to our own sins? Our own sins. Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel 18. In fact, Ezekiel tells us this very thing. 
Ezekiel 18, verse 1. 18, 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins will die. But if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness and does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman during her menstrual period, if a man does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, does not commit robbery but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing, if he does not lend money on interest or take increase, if he keeps his hand from iniquity and executes true justice between man and man, if he walks in my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord God. That's describing the Father. Verse 10. Then he may have a violent son who sheds blood and who does any of these things to a brother, though he himself did not do any of these things. That is, he, that is the son, the wicked son, he, the wicked son, even eats at the mountain shrines and defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore a pledge, but lifts up his eyes to the idols and commits abomination. He lends money on interest and increase. Will he live? He will not live. He has committed all these abominations. He will surely be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. His blood will be on his own head. This case, righteous father, wicked son. Is the righteous father responsible? No. The wicked son is responsible for his own crimes against God. 14. Now the opposite scenario. Verse 14. Now behold, he has a son who has observed all his father's sins which he committed, and observing does not do likewise. Okay, according to verse 14, the father is the sinner, the wicked one. The son sees the wicked father. He does not do likewise. 15. He does not eat at the mountain shrines, or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, or defile his neighbor's wife, or oppress anyone, or retain a pledge, or commit robbery. But he gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with clothing. He keeps his hand from the poor, does not take interest or increase, but executes my ordinances, and walks in my statutes. He will not die for his father's iniquity. He will surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was not good among his people, behold, he will die for his iniquity. The righteous son is not punished for the sinful father's sins. The sinful father is responsible for his sins, and the righteous son is responsible for his own obedience and his own sins. In this case, Ezekiel is clearly saying, by the word of the Lord, whoever sins... He is responsible for his sins. Don't blame another and seek to put the burden of punishment on another. Romans chapter 2. Romans 2 verse 5. Romans 2 5. 
But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. The Jew and the Greek, the Jew and the Gentile, whatever your background, God will deal with you impartially according to your own deeds. Next point, in the church. If we are believers in Christ, the Bible speaks to this as well. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, in Christ we are united, we are one. We are reconciled to God and one another in Christ. Colossians 3, verse 9, 3, 9. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old man with its evil practices and have put on the new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. We're all one in Christ. We are all redeemable in Christ. We're all valuable in Christ. He's our head. We're, we are a part of His body. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. Continues this thought that we are united in Christ because we are reconciled to God. Ephesians 2 verse 11. 2 11. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you at that time were separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. And through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Clearly, 
the apostles explains here that we had enmity, we are now one body in Christ, and we are presented to God, and we have peace with each other. Therefore, in the church, there's no need to speak in these violent and, and wicked ways towards one another. We ought to be united and worship together. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Our Lord, we ask you to help us intervene in our nation, intervene also in other parts of the world where violence is being committed. We ask you to spare us, spare your people, especially the church, from this turmoil. Help your church to be united, to speak forth rightly, Lord, and protect us. Protect your people from persecution and protect our societies, protect our governments where we live. Give us peace. Give us orderliness. Give us a society that practices righteousness, truth, justice for all. Not just for criminals, not just for black people, not just for any one particular group, but justice for all, because that is according to your word. Spare us, Lord, and deliver us from this evil and perverse generation. In Jesus' name, amen.